live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Move for present. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Except on this day, Jeff is off today. Another Monday, another colonoscopy for Jeff Wagner. <laughs> Just kidding, kidding. I wouldn't have brought it up had he not brought it up himself on the air, which he did last He did last week. He had a colonoscopy on Monday, and then he talked about it on Tuesday to say all went well and the process happened. And he liked it so much, he said, you know what? Let's do it again. So he is uh, he is uh, having another one today. No, I'm just kidding, kidding, people, kidding. Again, I would not have brought it up had he not brought it up. Long weekend for Jeff. And if you're having a second colonoscopy, that's a long weekend. Uh, no, a long weekend for Jeff. He'll be back tomorrow, I promise. My name is Scott Warris. Kyle Pachinski produces the big program. As always, you can get involved. As always, on the Acunin Mortgage Talk and text line, 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620. You can email in, if you'd like, scott.warris, scott.warris, W-A-R-R-A-S, at WTMJ.com. You can follow me if you like. Just keep your distance and peel off around dusk, because after nightfall, uh, it can get a little awkward. Coming up on the program, I'm with you till 3 o'clock. There are uh, several really interesting stories that I find out there in the system, in the uh, ether, if you will. And one of them involves, and I was saying this with Stephen Carroll, um, one of them involves the age at which young people are still seeing their pediatrician. There is something that is happening in light of Obamacare, and the fact that young people can now be on their parents' health insurance until age 26. And one of those things happening is that, well, these young people are simply still uh, still seeing their pediatrician. Yeah, what time do you cut that cord and move on to an adult doctor? Weight Watchers is coming under fire for an app that is intended to help people. We'll talk a little politics as well. A couple of interesting stories from The Hill, including... Why lawmakers are cursing now more than ever, which is something that I noticed. Also, there is, in essence, one person, in my opinion, that is still, I would say, pretty much bipartisan when it comes to their interviewing skills, when it comes to their coverage. He was on TV yesterday. I'm curious if there's anybody else on your list. All kinds of stuff. We'll squeeze in a great Scott before all is over. This weekend, incidentally, I, I set out on Saturday, I have a Saturday show, so I mentioned this on Saturday afternoon, but I'll mention it now again. On Saturday, I set out to see just how ubiquitous the scooter situation is in downtown Milwaukee, because I don't run into the scooters too much based on my travel and where I live and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, you know what? It's a Saturday, middle of the day. A lot going on downtown, you had Irish Fest and all that stuff. Let me just drive through the heart of downtown and let me see what kind of scooter-related activity I can find. 
And I'll be honest, I was kind of disappointed. I really was. I was hoping that I would, you know, I would just be bird scooters and spin scooters and lime scooters. Those are the three companies currently out there. And I was, you know, I was expecting to have them weaving in and out of traffic and just everywhere. I think I saw two, maybe three, and they were being ridden appropriately in the street, in the bike lane or where a bike lane would be in the street. So there was nothing wrong there. But I did find, and I have mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again, I did have to laugh to myself because in the course of navigating down Wisconsin Avenue and then turning northbound to come up to uh, the station here in the Upper East Side, I was struck by the, again, the fact that you can go for a certain stretch of roads, and a certain stretch of, of you know downtown and and see so many different forms of transportation and it, it as i have said before and i've 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 coined it the entire evolution of transportation as we know it in society remains on display here and now in downtown milwaukee and i say that because i saw scooters i saw the hop it whizzed past me as I was stopped at his intersection. So we have a streetcar. You have the buses. I did not know that they still have the trolley, the wheeled trolley. You know what I'm talking about? And oftentimes they are rented out for wedding parties and things like that. But there at the intersection was one of those old school red trolleys. But it's basically a glorified bus because it has the rubber wheels, the rubber tires. That's still going on. <laughs> I was stopped on Wisconsin Avenue because we had a boat crossing. So a boat was working its way down the Milwaukee River, and so the bridge was up, and we were stopped. So there's people navigating the river on boat. And then there, there's a, a, a company, which I did not realize was in existence, offering tours of Mil- downtown Milwaukee. And the tours of downtown Milwaukee are basically... You jump into a glorified golf cart. It's as if they took two golf carts, smash them together, so you've got a what I call a limousined golf cart. They were giving to, it's it's everything and anything. Is there any form again I ask the question, is there any form of transportation we don't have in downtown Milwaukee? If you gotta go from point A to point B, you really have no excuse for not being able to do so. And then of course there there I go. Uh, I'm old school. As I say, I'm old school, I like cars. But that's just me. There I was navigating, so it really was kind of funny to see all that happening. And as I'm driving through downtown Milwaukee, I'm envisioning what's going to happen next July, the Democratic National Convention. All the Democrats will be motoring around in one way, shape, or form. (laughs) There goes the California delegation on scooter. Yeah. Zoom. Zoom. There goes the Rhode Island delegation. They just need a couple scooters. They don't need that many. 12.15. Here is something that is in the news right now. And um, we, we'll throw this open here and see if you have any reaction or if you have any, if you have any problem with the potential or the decision by the University of Wisconsin, for that matter, for Quintez Cephas. He is, of course, the Wisconsin Badgers football player, the wide receiver, who a couple of weeks ago was found not guilty when facing a second and third degree sexual assault charges 
It was a verdict that came down um, first a couple days in August, August second. Of course, not guilty. The jurors, the jury came back in in a half hour, and they found the young man, twenty one year old, not guilty. Badgers football coach Paul Christ had said shortly thereafter he would be welcomed back on the Badgers football team if, and a big if, he was cleared and reinstated, really, that's the word, if he was reinstated by the University of Wisconsin. Because even after Cephas was found not guilty, the university was still holding firm as to his suspension, not really suspension, rather his um, removal from the university altogether. Well, earlier today, Chancellor Rebecca Blank issuing a statement reinstating Quintez Cephas effective immediately. And as we've been following this case, as we've been following the trial, as we've been following this entire process, I ask you, at 414-799-1620 on the Akin Mortgage Talk and Text Line, do you agree with the decision by Chancellor Blank to reinstate Quintez Cephas? And if Cephas decides to do so, is the football program in the right to welcoming back on the roster? That's where we're going to start. Because I think there's something that is maybe a little bit out of the ordinary, maybe. I would even say for this entire story, for this entire saga, and it it just kind of culminated today with this decision by the university. It was a standoff between Cephas, his attorneys, and the university, and clearly the university was the one that blinked because Cephas was considering legal action against UW for the continued uh, stance, if you will, by the university to have him removed from school, even after the not guilty plea. Well, obviously, um, if you want to say they blinked, they blinked. And now he's back in school. Do you have any problem with how this entire process has played out? Do you disagree or do you agree? Either way. Tell me either way. Do you agree with the chancellor's decision to reinstate Quintez Cephas? And should he play football again, considering what he was accused of? Considering the trial as it played out, considering the decision by the jury, now that we have the whole thing, we can look at the entire saga in front of us, should he be back in school, should he be back on the football field? It's twelve nineteen. Scott Warris in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Twelve twenty one. Scott Warris sitting in for Jeff Wagner. He'll be back tomorrow. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Akin and Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is the statement uh, that uh, UW Chancellor Rebecca Blank put out today in response to uh, her decision to allow Quintez Cephas, the Wisconsin Badgers' former wide receiver. He's not. Right now, he's a former wide receiver, uh, to allow him back into school. UW-Madison has a responsibility to investigate allegations of sexual misconduct. 
in a prompt and thorough manner, as directed by state and federal laws. The university applies its code of conduct and and impartially and consistently, regardless of the identities of the individuals involved. In the case of Quintez Cephas, this process functioned appropriately and in accordance with state and federal guidelines and proceeded based on the information available to UW-Madison at the time of the university's investigation and hearing process. UW-Madison obtained information following the criminal proceeding that was not provided to the university during the student conduct process. Keep in mind, they suspended him. I'm sorry, it was not suspended. He was, he was um, kicked out of school before the, before the trial had worked its way through, before the, court, uh, the, uh, the case was all the way through. Chancellor Rebecca Blank conducted a review of this information and the petition for Cephas's reinstatement as quickly as possible, and in a complete and impartial manner. As a result, here is the money line. As a result, sanctions for Quintez Cephas have been reduced and his expulsion lifted. There were findings of responsibility of the student non-academic misconduct code that were upheld. Mr. Cephas has been reinstated as a UW-Madison student effective immediately. The quote from blank. All three of the primary participants in this case are our students. She's talking of Stephus and the two women who brought the accusations. And I know the past year has been painful for everyone involved. My decision is based on the availability of substantial new information that was not made available to us during the earlier process. I recognize that some will disagree with this decision. That's what I'm asking uh, you right now. To those in our community, she closes, who have experienced sexual assault, I sincerely hope that there is nothing in this case that will deter you from coming forward for support. Our university continues to be prepared to listen and respond. 414-799-1620. Before I give you my thoughts, uh, I'll let you weigh in. And uh, let's start in Burlington. Let's welcome in Scott to the program. Good afternoon, Scott. Hey, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm pretty well. So where do you come down on this decision? Well, you know, I was, I was watching this, I think, like many people. And, you know, we have a system in this country that says you're innocent until proven guilty. And uh, that certainly did not happen in this case. I mean, I think a lot of people looked at this and said, you know, um, something doesn't smell right here. And the whole case was just, just didn't look right. And, uh, you know, so he gets kicked out of school, gets kicked off the team. You know, he was one of the premier players on the team. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, there was probably something going on there with some thoughts from, you know, these girls. I, I don't know what all happened there, and I right. certainly don't condone any any kind of, you know, mm-hmm. something going on that shouldn't be going on, like rape or whatever. But the point is, is that he was found innocent. Yep. And he should absolutely be allowed to go back to school and be part of that team again. And I don't think there's any question about that. Thanks for the call, Scotty. I do appreciate it. 414-799-1620. Sandy and Muskego would agree with Scott right there. Uh, Sandy writes on the text line, I agree with the reinstatement. This was a case of guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty. The university expelled him, and that's why they could not just automatically reinstate him. Now, keep in mind, uh, I appreciate that text, keep in mind that Look, Rebecca Blank and the university, the university could make a decision before a, a, a criminal trial could proceed and would proceed. They have a certain code of conduct 
that they ask their students to live up to. And if not, they can suffer the repercussions. They suffer the punishment for it. So I understand the point that a couple of you are making that, he look, blank should have waited, or the university, I should say, in general, should have waited to expel him until the criminal proceedings culminated, in this case, with a not guilty verdict. But But they don't need to, because in terms of what a university can do, expulsion or otherwise, in, in terms of punishment, it's a much it's a much lower bar. There's a lower threshold for punishment uh, than there is when you talk about uh, the judicial system and a criminal uh, proceeding, if you will, legal proceeding. Twelve twenty-seven. A couple of more moments, and and then I'll I'll tell you why I'll tell you why I think Cephas was right to be reinstated and why Cephas is right to return to the football program if he wants to because this was a process that in the end I think it played out exactly the way it should have. Anyway, I'll explain next on WTMJ. Scott Warris in for Jeff. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's my take on Quintez Cephas, this entire process, reinstatement today. We'll see. Uh, Paul Chris, the football coach, said a couple of weeks ago that he would be welcome back to the football team if he wants to come back to the football team. In my opinion, this entire saga, this entire process, and I'm not commenting on, on the facts of the case. I'm simply saying that this is exactly how this should work. This is exactly how the entire process should operate from start to finish. And we live in a time where, especially when you talk athletics, and especially, I should say, collegiate athletics, where you are always hearing about athletes or even non-athletes, but students with some sort of standing, where you hear corners being cut and due process overlooked, if not fast-tracked, This is due process. This is how this entire thing should work. Rebecca Blake and the University of Wisconsin had a case. They had a certain set of facts before the criminal trial started. They were within their right, within their purview to act on the behavior of a student based on claims. They made a decision to expel him and subsequently, obviously, then kicked off the football team, but then expel him based on what they knew. Cephas fought the charges in a court of law. It took 30 minutes for a jury of his peers to declare him not guilty, after which the University of Wisconsin considered the new facts that came out in the criminal trial, and they said, you know what? Based on this process, based on what we now know, based on the fact that he is not guilty, you are now welcome back to the university, and we'll see if he ultimately goes back to the football program. I have, I, I cannot find a problem with how this whole thing played out. I really can't. Quintus Cephas had his day in court. The process worked, whether it's the process by the university which felt it was doing what they had to do for their students, for the safety, to punish based on what they knew. That process worked. The criminal process worked. Every, it was, it's kind of refreshing. And I think it's smart by Rebecca Blank and the University of Wisconsin to, to not dig 
you know, dig their heels in and say, no, this is what we decided. I don't care what new information we've learned in the criminal case. We're not going to invite them back. This is the process, both in the private world, if you will, of the university, and then the, the, the public criminal trial. Cephas wins in the university realm and in the courtroom. And when, like I say, when you talk college athletics, is it, this is kind of refreshing um, because it, it's not the norm usually, right? The university, oftentimes, athletic departments covering up uh, the uh, maybe some um, inappropriate actions, if not criminal actions, by students, by coaches, by athletes. Not in this case. The process that was in place every which way worked. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Almost a year ago, two Wisconsin fixtures combined to form one powerhouse, Good Karma Brands Milwaukee. To celebrate, we're giving ourselves a little shout-out with GKB Week. But it's not all about us, as we'll have special bonus items for fans in each of our giveaways all week long. Happy GKB Week from all of us at 620 WTMJ. Scott Warris in for Jeff, 1238. Okay, this next one is one uh, for which I, I need a little help. I need a, I need some help on this topic. Um, and I think that is uh, one of the values of doing a, a show like this, long-form talk, because I can I, I have a knowledge base of only so much. I have only so many life experiences from which to draw. Some of them I can't because I haven't experienced them. And this is one of them. I am not a parent, okay? Um, so this is one where moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, all that stuff. I, I need, I want to know your reaction to this. 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Weight Watchers, which by the way, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to stick, but remember Weight Watchers now calls themselves something else. They now call themselves WW. They announced this, I think it was last year, maybe even two years ago now. I don't know why. It was Weight Watchers that cumbersome to say? Everybody knows Weight Watchers, but now they're WW. Ridiculous. Anyway, branding, right? I'm sure they some sort of research said they'd be smart to do that. I don't exactly know what that research would be, though. But anyway, wait. I'm going to call them Weight Watchers because that's what I know them as. That's what most people know them as. Weight Watchers, as CNBC reports, Weight Watchers has introduced a new app called Kerbo, and it is intended to help kids and teenagers ages 8 to 17 reach a healthier weight. Okay? How it works is adolescents track their food in Kerbo's free app, and they've really kind of dumbed it down. A green, yellow, or red light will grade what and how much of a food they eat. Kids can also then consult with a digital coach for a fee that costs about 70 bucks a month. The chief scientific officer for Weight Watchers says this is a scientifically proven way to get kids to eat healthier and move more. So we're excited to get it into as many hands as possible. So there are Weight Watcher loyalists, if you will, that love the move. They say that the company has transformed their lives. And I'm sure it has. Is Oprah still a spokesperson for Weight Watchers? Anyway, it's transformed their lives and hope it can transform 
children's lives too. But nutritionists worry that Kerbo, the app, promotes an unhealthy relationship with food during an especially impressionable time. One dietitian uh, says, I really do appreciate the idea that parents are signing up their kids in ways that are largely well-intended, but what we know is that preoccupation with food and righteousness around food does not create healthy relationships with food. It does not leave people feeling good or competent in eating. So when you sign up for this app, you enter your name, you enter your height, your weight, and your gender. You then choose a goal. Do I want to eat healthier? Is my goal to lose weight? Is my goal to make parents happy? Which is kind of an odd goal to have in, you know, in the realm of health. But anyway, is my goal to get stronger and fitter, to have more energy, or to boost my confidence or feel better in my clothes? Another dietitian said she wanted to, who owns her own practice, said she wanted to barf when she heard make parents happy was an option. Kerbo is meant to be a family-based approach and that parents should not single out one child. Instead, parents need to set the example and involve the entire family. Kids who are overweight know they're overweight, overweight and already feel bad about it. Giving them this app to a kid is like saying there's something wrong with you. Hmm. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. I need help on this topic because on the surface, I can't really get that outraged at it, but I recognize I recognize the fact that 8 to 17 might 8, 9 and 10-year-old isn't that a little young to be thinking about how overweight am I? Are my parents happy with me? What's my body image? And in the teenage years, image, image is everything for a teenager, right? And is this something that could actually help? I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy. There's nothing wrong with doing what you can to live a healthy life, eat well, you know, exercise, move around. But where do you come down, especially moms and dads out there? Maybe if you've dealt with your son or daughter and maybe health or weight challenges in their youth. Is this an app that is helpful? Because you know what? It kind of makes it real simple for them. Well, anyway, to continue with more about Kerbo here. Once you select your goal, and again, there's those five, what, about one, two, three, four, five, six different goals. Once you pick a goal, you rank how important the goal is to you on a scale of 0 to 10. Not important, super important. And how confident you are that you can reach your goal from not confident to super confident. Then it, it charts your body mass index. You can check how many green, yellow, and red foods you've eaten during the week. Well, it's not quite counting points, which is what Weight Watchers does a lot. It's not that far from it. The dietitian I mentioned earlier, they dismiss the idea that Kerbo's a diet. He defines it as a program like uh, the Cato diet or the Paleo diet that labels certain foods as bad and encourages people to avoid them. So what's wrong with that? 
What's wrong with telling young people who maybe do not have a general consciousness of, hey, that's bad, I shouldn't, I should have less of that and more of that. What's wrong with just saying, look, this is a, this is a red light food, have less red light foods and have more green light foods and encourage people to avoid them. Diets, he said, lead to short-term behavior change, whereas Weight Watchers focuses on establishing healthy patterns. I spoke to somebody earlier today um, here in the building who uh, said that um, they didn't feel real comfortable with this be, you know, based on raising daughters. And, and that made me start to think, well, is this, is this not all it's cracked up to be? Is there something to this? Or again, and I go back, maybe it's the age that just kind of got me a little bit, really, 8, 9, 10. But if you can get a young person, really young person, to just, you know, think about health in a real simple way. Beyond eat your vegetables, Susie. Don't forget to finish your broccoli, Tommy. If you can get young people to think about it, maybe a little bit more than just that, a red, yellow, green light type system, is that all that bad? Or because of some of the goals, body image, which which I do I do have a problem with some of these. You know, what's your goal as a ten year old? Your goal is to make your parents happy, boost my confidence, feel better in my clothes. Uh, then you start to to kind of uh, approach the body image type of uh, factors that are in play. But might this might this work? Might this work? And might this be more impactful than other ways? to try and get at young people to just be a little bit healthier. So there you have it. Uh, again, parents, I implore you to help me out on this one. Like it, hate it, somewhere in between. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Kyle lines up the calls, and we'll go to you next. Scott Warris in for Jeff on WTMJ. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Continuing on here, Scott Warris sitting in for Jeff Wagner. Long weekend for Jeff. Back tomorrow, 414-799-1620, the Akinen Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Weight Watchers is, uh, as CNBC titles their coverage of this, Weight Watchers under fire for selling diets to children as young as age 8. It's an app called Curbo, and it is uh, aimed and has been introduced for Quote, helping kids and teenagers from 8 to 17 reach a healthier weight. I can see both sides of this, and I really don't know. I, I'm Right now, you can convince me here, I'm kind of leaning towards the, you know what, getting young people to just understand health a little bit better, and that's what this app is. It's a really basic app. The benefits of that, they outweigh some of the detractions, but that's why I want to I hear from moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, who have dealt with young people who are very impressionable. To the phones, let's go to Merton and talk to Mimi. Hi, Mimi. You're on WTMJ. Hi. What do you think um, of this? I'm a parent. I have two girls and a boy, but more importantly, I'm a healthcare provider who treats obese children. And um, there are very few tools out there to help me do what I do. And I think... I looked it over. I think it's a very good tool to use for children who already are obese, already have problems with their self-image. 
And there, there aren't any guidelines, and kids are very concrete. And what Weight Watchers offers is some very concrete type of uh, recommendations with that red light and green light. And I think, actually, it's a very good system. And I'm really disappointed in the uh, amount of flack that they're getting for this. They're getting so much negative press, and I'm really disappointed in that. What do you find, Mimi, in your profession, or maybe with your own kids, if if that were the case, what do you find to be the most effective way to help young people learn about health and and try to, if they're on a path of, of obesity or on a path of... Uh, just, just uh, you know, not not good eating. What is the most effective route besides of this well, app or anything like that? It's very complicated. Yeah. So you know, environment to me is huge. So we, our children, model what we do. So mm. the first thing to start, try to help them with is help parents make better choices because the children don't have a lot of control over what comes into the house. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think. That's that's my challenge is to change the culture in that household. Sure. The goals that that Kerbo, the app lays out where you sign up for Kerbo, um, Tommy puts in his name or Susie puts in her name, her height, her weight, her gender. And then you choose a goal. Eat healthier, which I'm okay with. Lose weight. Okay. But the goals of make my parents happy uh, or boost my confidence or feel better in my clothes. It kind of makes me cringe a little bit, but let's be honest and tell me if you disagree, Mimi. Aren't those the most, let's be honest, aren't those the most important immediate goals for young people? I mean, I think of kids in in, in high school. Don't they simply want to, if they are impressionable, if they do think, you know, about uh, what do other people think of me and that's what they do, aren't they concerned how they look Physically, I mean, those may not sound like real wholesome goals, but in reality, that's what young people care about, right? So why not lay it right out there? Yeah, I see them as talking points, right? So if if I want to please my parents, that's not necessarily uh, what I want them to be shooting for. Um, You know, but you're right in terms of how they look in their clothes. To me, that means they're making progress if they can, you know, tie the belt a little tighter, that just gives them a visual way of saying, yeah, I'm making progress. I'm losing weight, and this is a good thing. So, I mean, I think those things are okay to be in there. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the call, Mimi. I do appreciate it. To Brookfield and Bev, who feels a little bit differently. Good afternoon, Bev. Good afternoon. You know, we have an app that's been developed, and uh, I think it's very well-intentioned, but notice that it's designed to treat the same uh, with the same method, kids from 8 to 18, red, yellow, and green is great if you're an 8-year-old. If you're a 15-year-old, you're accustomed to the sophistication of all kinds of computer games. And I don't think it's going to be that effective for kids uh, who are older because it uh, isn't going to hold their interest with feedback mechanisms and game-like uh, strategies. That's my first concern. My second concern is particularly for the younger kids. Um, and I would agree completely with the previous caller, you don't replace your parent with an app. Parents need to educate. Parents need to set a good example. Parents need to provide encouragement, and parents need to provide affirmation when kids are making good choices, not an app. We also have a whole school system that's devoted to teaching kids about good nutrition and good eating. Um, So I think it's kind of superfluous, and uh, I think we're turning to apps 
to do what parents and schools need to do more effectively. Not that I disagree when you talk about what schools, and even more so than schools, uh, what parents should be doing in the house, but when it comes right down to it, in the real world, in the everyday world that young people live in, I mean, as, as crazy and maybe as unfortunate as it is to admit, aren't the chances higher, Bev, that an app, as crazy as this sounds, an app might actually be more effective than mom or dad harping on me for eating healthier, harping on me to get off my butt and get outside and, and be active? Boy, I sure hope that nothing will ever replace the effectiveness of a parent talking with a child and encouraging a child. I hope an app will never replace a parent who is providing good examples when they go through a grocery store. An app won't do that. Kids learn first and most from the people they grow up with, and parents provide ongoing information 24-7. An app only when you plug into it. So don't replace parents with yeah. apps. I'm not saying uh, we should. I, I, I'm just thinking right. in, in terms of what is actually happening out there. i got to let you go, Bev. I appreciate the call very much. Real quickly on the text line, uh, let's see, the um, from the 414, I think it's great. Of course, some people are going to say, let's not hurt Timmy's feelings. Let's just let him be a diabetic. Mm. Uh, Joel from Manasha, my oldest son was overweight. At about 13 years old, he was overweight. Uh, younger, but we have to let kids grow up a bit. But at 13, I sat down with my son, had a talk about being overweight, eating better, exercising, and so on. He took it to heart and has since grown eight inches in a year and a half. Uh, just talk to your kids and his parents. We can help maintain a healthy lifestyle about what we feed our kids. 262, I hate it. They are perpetuating the notion that your worth is determined on your outward appearance. That is the debate. Again, the app is called Kerbo, and uh, Weight Watchers getting heat. We'll see how this plays out. More coming up after 1 o'clock. News is next. Scott Warrison for Jeff on WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Scott Warris sitting in for Jeff Wagner. Back tomorrow with you until 3 o'clock. As usual, 414-799-1620. Akin and Mortgage Talk and Text Line. That's how you can get involved. Did not take long for Al Sharpton to find a microphone to react to the officer uh, being fired in the Eric Garner case all these years later. It's amazing how quickly... The Reverend is able to find cameras and find a microphone and, and somehow, you know, project himself up there in the middle of, of a case of that uh, type. He'll find a way. He always does. Uh, real quickly, in, in honor of our last story, in the last uh, few segments, we talked about Weight Watchers with that app geared to young people to help them know what is good or bad food and a red light, a green light, a yellow light, based on that kind of stuff. And in honor of that, I had my third donut of the day. <laughs> it's not healthy, folks. Mountain Dew in my third donut. What? What am I doing? That's that would be, by the way, that'd be red light. I'm thinking that. I think that donut, a donut, donuts, would be a bright, flashing red light in the Weight Watchers app carol kane brought the donuts in by the way thank you carol i've clearly made my own dent in the box but i figure at this point because carol was in what around nine o'clock ten o'clock 
I mean, we're two, three hours. If people have not had a chance to eat the donuts now, then it's like, you know what? You're on to seconds, if not thirds. On that note, let's continue the health conversation a little bit longer, shall we? This is something that, and I said it with Carol and Steve, this is something that has turned out to be an unintended consequence of Obamacare and the element of Obamacare that allows young people to be on their parents' insurance until they're 26 years old. That was one of the things that was written into the Affordable Care Act. But as the Washington Post wrote yesterday, some young people are just not moving on from their pediatricians. What? And it's going beyond 26 years old. <laughs> Does your And maybe... Maybe there are some of you out there that are still seeing your pediatrician, even though you are very much no longer a child. I did not know this was happening, but apparently it is. And from what I can gather, not a lot of people have a big problem with it, I guess. The Post writes, when Joanne Alfonso, a pediatrician in New Jersey, walked into her office recently, she mentally rolled her eyes when she saw her next patient a 26-year-old car salesman in a suit and tie. She says, or she thought, that's no longer a kid, that's a man. Yet, Alfonso, the doctor, was not that surprised. In the past five years, she has seen the age of her patients rise. As more young adults remain at home, and thanks to the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, on their parents' health insurance until 26. Here's what the doctor said. First it was 21, then 23, now 26. Of course, before the Obamacare law went into effect, you could be on your parents' insurance basically through college. So 22 years old, let's say. Well, now it's 26. and A lot of them, talking about the, the young people, the adults, even though they're young, a lot of them cannot afford to live on their own. So they're still living with mom and dad. A lot of them can't and can't afford their own insurance or even afford the copay. And if insurance is offered at work, there's usually a cost share involved if insurance is provided at all. But these days, that's pretty realistic. The doctor says, we have people who have had children and they still see us. Did you get that? So there are pediatricians out there that are still uh, that are seeing the parents and their children concurrently. So when is it time to leave your pediatrician? They talked to uh, a man who's 22 years old. The Post talked to uh, this uh, young man named Talon Manfredini. I don't know, whatever. He's 22. He says he only left his p- pediatrician who was a woman, this year because he moved from his family home in New Jersey to begin a new job in Miami. Now that's a different dynamic at play as well. Right? Or no? If you're a young person, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and you're still seeing a pediatrician, if I'm a guy and it's a woman... I don't know about that. Here's a, um, I don't know, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, this uh, 
He didn't think twice. This 22-year-old uh, kid. Kid. It's a guy. What am I talking about? He did not think twice about continuing to see her, even though he'd finished college. She just felt like a regular doctor, he says. It did not feel odd at all or different or weird or anything like that. Okay. You think that's odd? How about this? They talked with Debbie Weinberger DiFrancesco. She's 41. She continued to see her pediatrician until she was 27. The thing I remember very clearly, especially towards the end of my time there, was how the moms were the same age as me and not thinking that I was too old for the doctor, but that they were too young to be having babies. (laughs) She finally decided it was time to get an adult doctor when she got married. I thought it was a good idea for my husband and me to share the same doctor and have our files under one roof. So that's the only reason why she did it. Hmm. Aside from some potentially awkward moments in the waiting room, which admittedly, that was the first one of the first things that came into my mind. I mean, let's take the extreme. Let's say you're 26 years old and you're going to go to the doctor that you saw when you were six, 20 years ago. And you have to go to the to the office, and you're in the waiting room. If you're seeing a pediatrician at age 26, what does that waiting room look like? I mean, think about it. It's got little kids, infants, people, kids, 20 years, your junior. You have a waiting room that is probably, what, filled with coloring books, nursery books, toys, Those little tables that are, you know, set up for somebody who is a tiny person, a child to sit at. Are you still sitting? You still color in the waiting room? I mean, is this, is this common? Obviously it's commonplace, but I didn't realize this was happening. I didn't. 414-799-1620 on the Akin and Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'd love to talk to somebody if they're a young person and they're still going to see their pediatrician. Or if you just went to your pediatrician for a, for a long, long time and eventually you went to see an adult doctor. The American Academy of Pediatrics attempted to address the issue of transition from pediatric care into adult care in 2017 and concluded that the age of transition should be based not on a number but on the patient's individual needs. Hmm. The decision should be made solely by the patient and the family when appropriate, and the physician and must take into account the physical and uh, psychosocial needs of the patient and the abilities of the pediatric provider to meet those needs, they said. In addition, the establishment of arbitrary age limits on pediatric care by healthcare providers should be discouraged. They said healthcare insurers and other payers should not place limits that affect the patient's choice of care provider based solely on age. So age should not be the discretionary variable here, right? The statement was written and published because more pediatricians were seeing older and older patients. There aren't any official legal rules. Sometimes insurance companies will try and make rules. Sometimes the hospitals will try to make rules. But there's nothing to say that they couldn't keep pediatricians can't keep seeing young people or young adults. Young young adults were licensed as physicians, not necessarily pediatricians. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. 
I understand there is a benefit to this familiarity, health history. If you as a doctor have been seeing me, let's say, Scott Warris, since I was five and then I'm 25, you have that health history, you have that rapport, and I recognize that that is very important. The relationship between a, a, an individual and, their, and their, their physician is vital. The trust, the knowledge, the ability to have that history beyond just a report. I mean, your file can be transferred from one to another, from one doctor's office to another. But still, there's a rapport there that you, I think, need to value. This baffles me, but it really does. Okay, so I want to hear, what do you think? Is, is this outrageous? Is this, is this ridiculous? Or is this in some ways smart? Because it, it clearly appears that pediatricians are not looking to change this at all. I mean, there's no real American Academy of Pediatrics. As I said, they tried to address it, but really didn't go anywhere. And so you have... 20-somethings sitting in pediatricians' waiting rooms with toddlers seeing the same doctor. And outside of the awkwardness in the waiting room, which is something that I would, like I say, that, that might force my hand. Outside of the awkwardness, I mean, it sounds like a lot of people don't have a problem with this. Do you? 414-799-1620. Acunin Mortgage Talk and Text Line will continue next. Scott in for Jeff on WTMJ. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Continuing on, Scott in for Jeff on WTMJ. How old is too old to stop seeing your pediatrician? If ever, I don't know, for some it's... uh, Clearly into their mid-20s. But there are reasons. And it appears that uh, pediatricians across the country, they've issued statements, they've put out different suggestions, but nothing seems to be gaining traction. I don't know, maybe I'm late to this party. I didn't realize this was as, would you say, as popular as it is. Menominee Falls and Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think I think it's the pediatrician's responsibility, first of all, to discontinue seeing that patient once adulthood is reached or at least at the age of 18. You know, there are things that pediatricians aren't able to take care of as an adult. Um, I also don't think that at the age of 26, Unless you are a full-time student, I don't think you should still be on your parents' insurance. Um, I worked with professional young women making great salaries, had insurance available to them through their job, and they were still on their parents' insurance. Yeah, um, we, and that parents, debate... And parents I, need to take some responsibility, too. They're not... They're certainly not helping these kids no, by enabling but, them at the age of 25, 26 years old just because they can. Right. Well, I, and I think that that is an argument, and we had that argument during the battle over Obamacare, and for now, anyway, that ship has sailed. But back to the use of, of pediatricians for young people in their 20s. Um, another reason, and this is kind of the point you make, Linda, is that um, 
As the Washington Post writes, living at home and remaining on parents' insurance policies aren't the only reasons. Medical advancements over the past decade are extending the life expectancy of those with chronic childhood illnesses. You talk about congenital heart disease, cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, diabetes, and so you've got the pediatricians who cared for the for the children when, when, when they were children, when they had those conditions, sometimes they're remaining with them as they get older because of advancements. Uh, these young people are, you know, are living longer with some of these diseases and whatnot. And so it just makes sense from a medical perspective that somebody who treated them so young continues to treat them now. Does that impact you at all? Does that sway you at all? Well, Actually, it does. I have a daughter with congenital heart disease, Mm -hmm. and her last surgical procedure at the age of 28 was done by a pediatric cardiac surgeon. Hmm. But she does not see pediatric physicians anymore. Um, Yes, they do. As they grow older, they still have those congenital Mm -hmm. or those childhood issues, but now they are adults. And different circumstances are going to present that a pediatrician may not necessarily be able to address, and they need to be seeing a physician who's caring for adults with these these same illnesses. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the call, Linda. I do appreciate it. 414-799-1620. 20-somethings still seeing pediatricians. Anything wrong with that? Does that strike you as odd? This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just a moment longer here on the how old is too old to keep seeing your pediatrician, which apparently is becoming a thing or is a thing in society. As people, as young people can be on their parents' insurance until 26. That's not the angle that I'm debating here. That has been uh, a debate for a while, ever since uh, the fight over Obamacare began all those years ago. Promised we'd get to Jeremy in Racine. Hi, Jeremy. You're up next on WTMJ. Right, thanks for I, I do believe it's a little odd to continue on seeing pediatrician beyond your adulthood. Although, I, I mean, I can understand where some people come from in, in regards to the psychology of it. It's, you know, they feel comfortable with that doctor. There's a so, rapport that you have. I understand. Yeah, yeah. So you have years of, you know, dealing with that particular doctor. For myself, I... I never even had a pediatrician. I had a family doctor. He, he delivered me into this world, and I saw him up until I was 21 years old And when I joined the military, and then he just became too old to practice anymore, and then I moved on. So he left doctor. you? Huh? He left you? He, you said he retired? The doctor retired on uh, you? I joined the military, oh. and then when I came back, by the time I came back, he was retired. And right. Gone, so I, I had to find my own doctor at the time. But, I mean, he was the doctor for my mother and my aunt. He was a family doctor sure. for generations. So, I mean, it's not uncommon for, for people to keep continue on through, you know, the childhood to see the same doctor as far as the family doctor. But with my children... The minute they turn 16, we transition them over to our family doctor mm. that we have currently, and they've been going in since. Yeah, I, you know what, and I, I appreciate the call. Thanks for holding, Jeremy. There are people, and, and Kevin in Belgium is one, he texts in. There are people that are dealing with their sons or daughters having health issues, and, you know, in some ways, it, it is beneficial to continue with the doctor who has been with your son or daughter since they were born or since they were an infant because of all that medical history and that uh, 
knowledge. And again, I recognize and I understand that you can transfer a file and, you know, have, have one doctor get uh, up to speed on your son or daughter's health history by, you know, looking through all the past information and all that stuff. But is that really the same thing? Anyway, Kevin in Belgium texted in, My son turned 19 yesterday, but when he was 15, he was diagnosed with a form of bone cancer. I can't pronounce it, so I'm just going to describe it that way. That's me saying that. From his pediatrician. So the pediatrician apparently diagnosing Kevin's son four years ago with a form of bone cancer. He still continues to see her because he feels very comfortable with her and she feels, you know, comfortable with him. Again, there's that rapport there. Referencing an earlier caller, you can't put everybody in one class, Kevin says, and that is not right in my eyes. He will still continue to see all of his cancer doctors at Children's Hospital for the rest of his life. That is the way they want it. So in that case, it sounds like, anyway, if I read the text right, the doctors are saying, look, it, it is to your benefit to continue to come to Children's Hospital, see these doctors, you're 19, but as you grow older, uh, this is this is the best remedy for you. One more here. Let's go to Grafton. Bring in Michelle. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm good, Scott. You know how much I love you when you substitute. Thank you, um, Aunt Michelle. Yes. <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, a couple of people just told me thunder. Number one, you do have the family practice option, um, and they treat the entire family, and they deliver if it's not a complicated delivery. So they serve as OB, pediatrician, blah, blah, blah. Pediatric, pediatrics is a specialty, and I now work for Children's Hospital. I'll discuss it. Mm. But, um, and it's a discussion you need to have with your pediatrician. And we also have this lovely thing called EHR, and if the pediatrician thinks it's time for you to move on, they usually will um, say, this is a specialist that I would like you to see. And if you trust your pediatrician, then... They can give you some suggestions. And, you know, we all have to switch insurance. Every time you switch a job or whatever that coverage you have, you know, sometimes you just have to do it. You have sometimes the family has the kids have to get a new pediatrician and you have to get a new internist or family practice doctor or whatever. And, um, you know, we were all children once and we all had to make the transition. Yeah, now, at Children's are Right, they do do, um, they do, they have such complicated cases like greater mm-hmm. That the doctors like to make all decisions. Children's is wonderful. They make every decision in, they have conferences and family and oh, sure. all the specialists and everything. So that's an exception. No, there, and, and there, there are exceptions to the rule, Michelle. You're absolutely, absolutely. right. Absolutely. Th- absolutely. Thanks for the call. There are exceptions to the rule, but like Michelle says, I think in some instances, if you are a healthy young adult, you, you need to, you need to cut the cord. We talk about cutting the cord when it comes to, you know, living with parents or having mom and dad still do a lot for you when it's time for you to start to uh, leave the nest, as people have said on the text line as well. Um, you need to cut the cord when it comes to still with your pediatrician. And I, I get all that. But look, if the pediatrician, great point by Michelle, to echo that, if the pediatrician, if that relationship is so important and it, it's been so great for, in essence, your lifetime, then talk to them and say, look, I'd like to move on to a, 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 uh, an adult phys- a physician, a family doctor, family practitioner. Can you recommend somebody good? And then you can, you, you know that whomever you're now seeing as an adult has the blessing of that pediatrician that meant so much to you. To the pediatricians, 
to those offices. If you really are having a problem with it, why not just set an age limit? A 414 texter said, my kids' pediatricians will not see patients over 18. That's just the policy, and I would think most have that policy, according to the texter. I I thought so, too, but clearly that is not the case. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff enjoying a long weekend. Scott War is sitting in for him. He'll be back tomorrow. Do not worry. He will be back tomorrow. A little politics. We just dip our toes in the political waters for just a second. There's a couple things, including the fact that Joe Biden, Joe Biden is coming under fire for saying something along the lines of, quote, there are some pretty good Republicans out there. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Or not. There's an awful lot of, I'm sorry, there's an awful lot of really good Republicans out there. Oh, my gosh. A bipartisan comment by a Democrat running for president. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> you could say that and not come under fire for it. There's something that The Hill, the publication The Hill, has come out and has examined, speaking of political rhetoric, there's something that is happening now more than ever here in 2019, especially during the campaign, presidential campaign. There's something happening statistically. There's evidence that there is something happening more now than ever before. And it's great because I thought this was happening. I I could have I could have sworn, no pun intended, I could have sworn that this was happening more frequently. But now there's statistical evidence that says it is. Should we try this as a uh well you know what? We'll, we'll do this at two oh seven. We'll do that at 207, because I want to do this real quickly right now. Also in the Hill, a couple of good things in the Hill this week. And this is something that I've been thinking about as well. As I consume, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way, 414-799-1620, Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. As I consume political chatter, political analysis, Political shows. I love politics. I love sports. I love politics. So basically, there's always something good on television or radio to be tuned into if you're me, right? But when it comes to the world of politics, there are fewer and fewer people for whom I can turn to, especially I'm talking nationally now, for whom I can turn to for a truly fair yet hard interview. You understand what I'm saying? It it is so difficult now, and I imagine many of you feel the same way. It is so difficult to turn on a channel, a a cable news network of whatever, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, the big ones, even the little ones, and try to find a voice, a moderator, an interviewer, of guests, of pundits, and somebody who's going to be pretty close to right down the middle, and somebody who's going to turn the screws to their interview subject of a particular political iteration, whether you're Republican or Democrat or somewhere in between. I think there's really 
only one person, and I, I thought about this yesterday because this person was off. There's really only one person left that I can turn to and tune into and feel as if, you know what, whoever's sitting opposite the desk from them, they're, they're going to get it tough. They're going to get tough questions. They're going to get scrutinized. Their answers are not simply going to be glossed over. They're going to be pressed and pushed on whatever the hot topic is or whatever they've said. They're going to have to own their, their comments and their opinion. There's one person out there that I feel does this better than anybody. And honestly, I don't know that there's anybody else doing it. I used to feel this way about Tim Russert. Now, admittedly, Russert's been gone since, what, 2007, right? He passed away suddenly right before uh, the election of Barack Obama during that campaign. So 07, early 08. Gosh, it's been 11 years, 11, 12 years since Tim Russert died. Well, anyway, I felt... And I was you know, a little younger then. Maybe I wasn't quite as cynical about politics as I am now going through you know, the career that I have here and whatnot. I always felt if I tuned in to meet the press that Tim Russert would, and he was so good at slicing and dicing, and really, like I said, putting the screws to... Whoever was sitting across the table for uh, across the table from him on Sunday morning NBC Meet the Press. I don't feel Chuck Todd really does that anymore. I think he's he's slanted and 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 I I, I cannot, you know, George Stephanopoulos of ABC. He may try to do it, but in my mind, I cannot get over the mental hurdle that George Stephanopoulos was an aide to President Clinton. So. I feel as if a lot of the pundits out there, a lot of the moderators, not pundits, wrong word, the moderators that are out there have a real difficult time convincing me, selling me on the fact that he or she, for that matter, can press an interview subject when it comes to politics and press them regardless of their own personal political opinions, especially now, especially in this day and age. But there is one person out there that I feel does this better than anybody. And quite candidly, they may only be the they may be the only person left doing this, carrying the mantle of a Tim Russert. Okay? One person still does it. And like I say, it's a top of mind for me because I turned them on yesterday. I wanted to watch them, and they were off. They had a vacation day, apparently. Anyway, The Hill, publication The Hill, spotlights this person and calls this person President Trump's equal opportunity inquisitor. And they speak a lot to that which I've been thinking in the last couple of years as seemingly any hopes or any premise that these political talk shows, the Sunday morning talk show circuit, any premise that they were right down the middle and would push their guests fairly regardless of political ideology, I I don't buy the premise anymore, except for this one. And I'll tell you who that is when we come back. Scott in for Jeff on WTMJ. Hey, Steve Scritti here reminding you that this is GKB Week. 42 weeks ago, WTMJ came back under local ownership, and it has been a wild ride since. Thanks for coming along with us.
Happy GKB Week to all my teammates, all of our partners, and all our fans on 620 WTMJ. One fifty-six. Scott Warrison for Jeff Wagner. Okay, who am I talking about? Who is that one person, really, in my opinion, the only person that is still on television in the news and politics coverage of cable and even non-cable networks and things like that? Somebody that The Hill has spotlighted in a recent piece by Brett Samuels. That person is Chris Wallace. I feel as if Chris Wallace is the, 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 the lone voice in the wilderness when it comes to a guest sitting across the table and him pressing them. He has been, I th- he is as down the middle. And I realize he's on Fox, so I think he's a lot of people maybe, especially those who are Democrats or lean left, probably don't even consider Chris Wallace of a a level of impartiality that I do because, well, he's on Fox. So clearly he's got to have a bias. If he does, he hides it as well as anybody. And Chris Wallace is the one person, he's the one voice, the one face out there that I really, really enjoy. And I encourage you to check out the piece in The Hill. They talk about Chris Wallace, as I said, they title it, Chris Wallace Becomes Trump's Equal Opportunity Inquisitor. And they dissect that um, somewhat tense interview that he did last year with President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Remember, he handed him uh, the the uh, indictment uh, towards uh, those Russians involved with uh, election meddling. And then he ended the interview. <laughs> here's, here's my favorite part of the story. Um, as they write about this interaction with Putin, for example. Um, Chris Wallace was nearing the end of a tense interview with Putin when he had won the mercurial leader's attention. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. No, that is just not true. That is a falsity. And that's not even a word. It's false. False advertising, Kyle. Jeff is off today. Don't worry, you only have to put up with me for another 52 minutes. Jeff is back tomorrow. And um, I appreciate everybody who is uh, weighing in. Had some good discussions in the first couple hours. Okay, uh, we did this last Monday. Yeah, that was the last time I was in for Jeff. And I like to do this here. It's something that we like to call, can you read my mind? Uh, Before I do this, though, real quickly, um, thank you to the 608 texter. Last segment, if you just join us, I was talking about there's a great piece in the Hill, a profile of Chris Wallace. And I really feel like Chris Wallace is the best unbiased moderator when it comes to political analysis and political talk and the Sunday morning show, all that stuff. Not just Sunday morning, but <laughs> weeknight shows, weekday shows, and everything. Chris Wallace is as down the middle and is a an equal opportunity um, moderator when it comes to you know, just the hard questions. You, you, I don't know what his bias is if he has one. He's hard on his guests. He does a great job. He is the person, the only person left that I go to. Used to be Tim Russert, and then uh, he's been gone almost a decade now. Wallace does it. Wallace does it as as well as anybody, the only one. Uh, But anyway, the 608 texter says, Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation. Um, Watch yesterday's show. You'll see what I mean. She's equal opportunity tough on whomever she is talking to regardless of political affiliation i'll be honest i have not seen enough of margaret brennan yet margaret brennan took over for john dickerson as the host of uh, cbs face the nation 
Dickerson took over for uh, Bob Schieffer, and Schieffer retired a couple of years ago. All right, I'll, I'll remember that. I will uh, uh, maybe next Sunday morning. I'll take a look at Margaret Brennan, somebody that I'm not familiar with, to be honest with you. And she is uh, now the host of CBS Face the Nation. It's tougher to find those type of people. It really is. <laughs> you can probably count on one hand and have a finger or two remaining. People for whom you feel that way. I think that's important that we find those individuals and we watch those individuals rather than just those who are really regurgitating what you believe, what I believe. I I, I love watching Republicans being pressed hard and Democrats being pushed on topics. Wallace does it as good as anybody, maybe Margaret Brennan as well. Okay, I I mentioned I want to uh, dip our toes here in the political waters. We have a little bit with that topic, and I've got one more here. The uh, There's been an analysis done by a government relations software company, and it has found that over the last five years, there's something on the uptick. When it comes to lawmakers, there's something more frequently that lawmakers are now doing and using than ever before. But especially when you look at just the last five years. You want to take a guess at what it is? 414-799-1620, Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. This is something that a lot of people seeking office or in office really didn't do a decade ago, and certainly decades, plural, ago. But now, new research, in fact, says not only is it happening more often, this year, members of Congress are on track to end up doing this more than ever before. You want to take a guess? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I find this interesting because I've also just thought anecdotally, this is really happening a lot more than it used to. I just I felt as if that was the case. But sometimes the way you feel about something, the way you the way you take in things like you know, what is processed in the news cycle. They don't always prove to be actually happening more often. This now, empirical data saying this is happening more than ever. 414-799-1620. We'll take a two-minute break. Do you know what this is? Can you guess what this is? I'll say this is a read-my-mind thing, but only a little bit. But we can have fun with it. We'll go to you next, and then we'll dive into this on WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The good old days, the honest man, the restless heart, the promised land, the subtle kiss that no one sees, a broken wrist and a picture pizza. I don't mind if you don't mind, cause I don't shine if you don't shine before you go. of a, uh, a a deviation off uh, 
our read my mind uh, feature we do from time to time there is something that is happening and i've i've noticed it anecdotally and now empirical data is saying lawmakers and political candidates here in 2019 are doing this at a more frequent clip than ever before in the last five years that's the range of data that this government relations software company has done uh, in doing the study but i guarantee if it's happened more in the last five years it definitely has happened more now than ever before even long before five years ago what is it uh some good guesses on the text line 414 says news conferences news conferences are happening more frequently than before no that's not it i mean it may be but that that's not what they that's not what they studied here another one uh doug telecommuting skype they're skyping into meetings or things like that no that's not happening more (laughs) especially for the legislators in madison hey another story for another day Hmm. The 262, using Twitter and other social media, yeah, that's probably on the uptick, only because social media and Twitter and that stuff is new. But the thing that gets me, and a couple people got it, Ray on the south side, you guessed correctly. Jeff in Ingleside, Illinois, you got it right. You want to guess, Kyle? Did I tell you this story? No idea. Lawmakers, statistics prove now, lawmakers, candidates, political candidates, politicians, they are cursing now more than ever. They're cursing. They're swearing. In analysis is the Hill, another great thing in the Hill right, this week. In analysis conducted, the findings show that the frequency of lawmakers using words that might make one grandma, one's grandmother blush has increased steadily since 2014. President Trump and several of the candidates running to oppose him, seeking uh, like Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, have used impassioned swear words to make their points recently. Sanders, I've got to be careful here what I read and don't read. Your finger on the dump button over there. Uh, Sanders responded to a debate comment about Medicare for All last month by saying that, quote, and this was in the debate, he wrote the damn bill. Trump used the word hell at least half a dozen times at a recent rally. So the data shows that obscene language, not including the S word and the F word, so they take those out because, well, I guess those are, I guess, would you say if you had to grade the severity of curse words, those are on the more severe end? Those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. Only four letters, but they're the biggies. So they they don't include the S word and the F word. But obscene language has been used at an all-time high by politicians. Over 1,200 instances on Twitter so far this year already. And we're only in August compared to about 800 last year, all told. The research shows a stark uptick in the overall use of curse words by legislators on Twitter. It wasn't always this way. Uh, one professor at uh, UC San Diego says certain four-letter words rarely came out of politicians' mouths in the public years ago. I, I would agree with that. In, like I say, last five years? For the most part, with few exceptions, candidates have avoided being recorded swearing. A 2012 
Okay, this is good. A 2012 Forbes opinion piece asked readers, when can a politician use profanity, if ever? But these days, look no further than countless congressional social media accounts and political rallies for R-rated language. They talk about Beto O'Rourke. He dropped an F-bomb while expressing his seeming frustration with the media after being asked by a reporter about what Trump could do in response to a mass shooting in El Paso. O'Rourke said he's been calling Mexican immigrants, rapists, and criminals members of the press. What the blank? Cory Booker used less than flowery language after the president blamed, in part, video games for the recent gun violence. Listening to the president... Such a BS, he didn't say BS, such a BS soup of ineffective words, Booker said in a text. Made similar comments in a CNN interview, used BS again. Maxine Waters urged Americans to call on their representatives to ban assault weapons again on Twitter. Demand the members of Congress get rid of all assault weapons or kick our blank out of Congress. I have, just as I said, anecdotally, and, look, the president, President Trump, has used language like, if, if we're using the terms that are on the lower end of the, 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 the curse word spectrum, can I put it that way? He's used them liberally in, in rallies and on Twitter, certainly. So he's as much to you know, blame as anybody. But it, it's, a, it's a very bipartisan issue. Okay? And some will blame him for the boost in blasphemous words for kind of setting us on this current course, this political tone. I think there's something to be said for that. But at the end of it all, it's up to the individual, the person themselves, when they're speaking at a rally, when they're tweeting something out as to the the choice of words they should use, right? Is it a sign of the times? Probably. I think in some ways using, and I'm not exactly, you know, I'm, I'm not immune to the choice word myself, off the air only, from time to time. But I do find it to be a little bit troubling. You'd like to think that your political officials are above that in some way, shape, or form. I think it is many times choreographed. I'll get into that when we come back. But I do think a lot of this, when it comes to, especially in tweets, where you have a moment to see what you typed before you press send, if you will, a lot of that is, is scripted, and a lot of that is forced. And there's a reason why politicians are doing this. If you're at a rally, you get caught up in the moment. I can see a certain choice word maybe slipping. But if it's something that's scripted in a speech or in a tweet, there's a motivation for politicians to do this. Rightly or wrongly, there's a motivation for them to do this. I'll tell you what it is next. It's 224. Scott Warrison for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's why politicians, in my opinion, why politicians are using curse words and swear words statistically more. Again, in this study, there were over 800 uses of curse words or swear words by politicians in the calendar year of 2018. Speeches, rallies, Twitter. There's over 1,200 already this year. And I realize it's a, it's a, 
it's, a, it's a, an election year or a presidential election cycle, so there's more opportunities. But nevertheless, it's happening. I think in a lot of ways, and uh, uh, Debbie uh, texted in saying they're just so mad they cannot contain themselves. Ah. But but they could for, dec- for, for, for a long time, for decades. I mean, as fired up as politicians would get. I mean, can you imagine like FDR? <laughs> we have nothing to fear but itself. I, I, you, you, I just, I can't think of of some, and they probably did. They're human beings like the rest of us, but they, it did not translate. It did not get into their 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 speeches in in official capacities as it is now. So why does it happen? I think in some ways. They're trying to, how can I, they ask themselves, politicians ask themselves, how can I make myself as relatable as possible? And I certainly think that they want to maybe tap into the emotions of the crowd, of the audience to which they're speaking. And they feel if if I use a blue word, if I use a four-letter word, uh, this is something that will rile them up and show them, look, I'm one of you. We are together in this. I'm as blanking upset as the next person. So I find a lot of it to be calculated. And whether it works or not, I guess you'd have to be the judge, depending on who's speaking and what they're saying. But when I when giving us when on the stump. I think a lot of it is, you know, Maxine Waters and her, her, it was in a tweet. Certainly if it's in a tweet, it's calculated. Now I feel, it, so I, does it work? Maybe. Are they doing it when they're really upset and, and the, the emotion of the moment gets the better of them? That's fine. But I'm telling you, not fine, but that's why it's happening. But I'm telling you that hasn't always been the case. I'd like to think, and there was a time not too long ago, where a politician, an elected official, could stand up there, give an impassioned speech, and not feel they got to resort to some curse word or some swear to get their point across. And I know that because it happened for decades and decades and, you know, as far back as you can go. Like I said, FDR swear. I mean, did, did Wood, is Woodrow Wilson dropping BS references? Is, was, was Abraham Lincoln. Four score and we don't have a bleep. I should have gotten a bleep here or something. Four score and bleeping years ago. Would that have helped? Think about that. Would that have helped the Gettysburg Address if Abraham Lincoln dropped a couple of F-bombs in it? Maybe he did and they just left those out. You're laughing, Kyle. The society and, and culture in itself has changed in so many, in, a, in a, an array of ways where they, don't, they didn't speak that way. They, they used so many words back then that we wouldn't even know the definitions for because they don't speak like we do and communication has changed. Here you go. I bet you instead of BS, you know, Cory Booker used BS, but he, he said it's such a BS soup of ineffective words. If he would have said words. gobbledygook. Okay, here's one. What about, here's one, poppycock. Yeah. I'll bet you, so, so what, what if he said, here's Cory Booker, listening to the president, such a poppycock soup of ineffective words. Now, how would have people reacted to the term poppycock? It's, it's a, then it's a laughable quote. You're, you're laughing I at him. I love that word, by the way. Bring it back. Isn't that popcorn? Poppycock? I think it is Is a that brand something of, else, like a brand of popcorn? I think it's a name. Yeah, oh, a okay. brand of something. Yeah. But the, the, just think. I'm going to do this during your news. Don't, I just, I'm going to tell you, Melissa, while you're doing the news, which is important, I'm going to be thinking back at great moments in presidential 
rhetoric and presidential oratory. I think if 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 they had if they had dropped, you know, December seventh, nineteen forty one. You talk about a moment. If there was going to be a president to drop a curse word or a swear word, would it not have been FDR as he is addressing Congress after Pearl Harbor? I think you need to think of more words that they would use, like poppycock. You know, certain words that they might put in there. What other? Uh, what, other what was gobbledygook? I, I, I need like that to, one. You know what we need to find? Maybe, maybe there's there, there's a dictionary, like old English to current English, and we can find some words that maybe were considered curse words this back in the day. could be a trend. This could be a new trend. But not anymore. I, I just... Yeah, yes. if, if you cryogenically freeze somebody from 150 years ago and bring them before us right now, they're not going to understand some of the words that we use. We're not going to understand some of the words that... You, well, we... We're, we'll understand what they're saying, but we're like, we haven't used these words in whatever, because the language has changed throughout the decades and generations. I asked a young lady out on a date, and I said, might you like to court on a fortnight? <laughs> My gosh. She had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> Turns around and walks away. Oh. No clue what I would have turned around and walked away. <laughs> Milady, and then I, I kind of, I doffed my, my, I was wearing a top hat too, which I couldn't. It, might you like to court on a fortnight? <laughs> All right, two thirty-two. Peep on oh, malarkey, Nathan malarkey. I like that one. So if, hang on, uh, if let's say, who was one I read here? Um, I think oh, Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. I don't know. If, he's been calling Mex. This is what he said about. Uh, the president. He's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Members of the press. What the malarkey? Like, what a load of malarkey? What a load, yeah. What a load of malarkey. What a bunch of poppycock. Again, I think you would have the, you, you would have the passion and you would feel what he's trying to say. And then what, what a load of malarkey? You would, he would lose everybody. Well, I find these words more interesting than... The words that they're using. That taps into a certain element of creativity in one's mind. Like, I, I always feel as if cursing or swearing is a, it, it's a default setting to the... to, to a lack of vocabulary. Yeah, a, yeah. a very low denominator. Like, you can do better than that. We, we, and after the news, which is, I, I, honest, I promise it's coming. After the news, we should explore, because I feel the same way about comedy. I feel the same way about comedy. Comedians up there who drop F-bombs left and right in the middle of their act, I just think it's, it, it's used to cheapen a joke. You know, I think, I, I think the hardest comedy is to do comedy without that. Yes. And to do a cleanish comedy. Fewer and fewer. Very true. That do it. That's why I, I appreciate that. Uh, Jeff and Fox Point. Here we go. This is Teddy Roosevelt. Speak softly, but carry a big blank. <laughs> All right. Creative texters. Good job. 262 adding balderdash add balderdash to a list that can replace curse words the 920 saying holy moly yeah see holy moly. i say that um good golly now here is a good a good point that a couple of you have brought up harry truman okay uh harry truman during the 48th presidential election uh truman delivered a speech attacking republicans during the speech a supporter yelled out give him hell harry Truman replied, I don't give them hell. I just tell the truth about them, and they think it's hell. And thus, give them hell, Harry, became a lifetime slogan for Truman supporters. So maybe maybe this is all, this is all on uh, the shoulders of Harry Truman. He started this. On the point I made about 
courting a girl on a fortnight. Uh, the 262 says, if that girl responded with, my good sir, it would be my honor, I should have married her. It's like I'm dating, you know, in a, it's, it's like a, a Dickens character. I'm in the middle of a Dickens novel with all this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Telling you many times, the texters and the callers are a lot more creative than I am. Richard Nixon, I am not a crook. What if he said, I'm not a bleeping crook? Would that have <laughs> endeared him to people? Uh, let's see. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this bleeping wall. I mean, just think if Reagan, Nixon, there's a joke with, uh, I, so I'm looking up. Uh, it's it's a, a headline, Political Quotes You Need to Know. If you just join us, we're talking about the fact that in the five years, in the last five years, a uh, analysis, a study, shows that cursing and swearing among politicians and congressional members and elected officials is at an all-time high. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I think we've crossed a, th- crossed a threshold. I think a lot of it is just intentional because it, you know, it... It, it's accepted more in society, like it or hate it. It's accepted. It's an accepted practice that it wasn't always the case. And you don't have to go back that far to find when it was not always the case and not accepted. And politicians find it as a way to endear themselves to the crowd to which they're speaking or the people to which they're tweeting. <laughs> Somebody on the text line. What if Lloyd Benson in his infamous 1988 debate with Dan Quayle, said, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no bleeping Jack Kennedy. (laughs) It's good. Oh, that's good. Read my lips. No new bleeping taxes. Hmm. Would cursing and swearing have carried more? Anyway, good job, everybody. Oh, the, the point I was making before about comedians. Do you find this to be this? Are you with me on this? I'm not a prude. I hope you don't come away with it. Like, I'm not, I'm not somebody, I, I'm not, I don't cringe. I don't hit the floor every time somebody curses or swears. But when it comes to the world of comedy, Let's, let's get away from politics now. Are you like me? Do you find comedians that rely on a lot or even some degree of profanity? I see it as an easy out. It's, it's an easy joke. Thinking, oh, if I drop an F-bomb here, it's going to, it's going to help deliver the, the laugh that I'm looking for. But it doesn't for me. It really doesn't. Kevin Hart, and I don't know if he's as blue as he used to be. Well, for example, there was a point in time I was uh, where were we? Oh, I was I was on a I was on a bus. I was riding a team bus back from a road trip, and somebody popped in the DVD a uh, 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 Kevin Hart special. I find Kevin Hart funny more so now than originally, but it was. I don't know if you've seen Kevin Hart and some of his, you know, HBO specials and some of that stuff. But he used the N-word, the F-word, I mean, some really blue stuff. And 
It was uncomfortable. It was awkward. And it just wasn't funny. And I think he is a funny, funny comedian. But I find him more so now, especially in some of the movies he does, when there isn't you know, a, a, a profane baseline for him. Some of that earlier stuff, and maybe his stand-up is still the same now. I don't really know. But some of the movies he does, I find him to be funny. Some of the stuff you see on television with him, I find funny. And I think it's it's... It takes a little bit more as a comedian. I'm not a comedian, but I, I'd like to think that it, I, I interpret comedy as it's a little bit harder to get up there and not curse or swear and still make people laugh. Maybe that's why one of the reasons why I like Jerry Seinfeld so much. I love observational humor, so that's a big part of it. But Jerry Seinfeld really doesn't swear or curse. You know what? I did go to a Seinfeld uh, show here in Milwaukee at the Riverside Maybe about eight, nine, ten years ago, he dropped a couple of a couple of four letter words, and I was kind of disappointed. I thought, hey, you don't need to do that. So maybe there's a little bit of that, some of that. Now, Mark from Bristol makes the point regarding comedians swearing that you've got to admit it worked for uh, George Carlin with the seven words you can't say on TV. I think maybe in that instance, it worked for Carlin because he really was the first to go that deep into it. And the fact that the joke, that entire routine, was based on profanity. Uh, the 847, Eddie Murphy, raw, turned it off. Too much swearing is too much. Yeah, it's just too easy. It's not that funny. But whether it comes from a politician, comes from a comedian, cursing and swearing, it's here to stay, like it or hate it. I'd rather not have it, but sadly, that is one of the societal changes that we are seeing. Hey, it is 2.45. Before I get out of here, we're going to squeeze in a Monday Wagner Show edition of... Great Scott! A former president's high school basketball jersey sells for how much? Hey, it's Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Final few moments of a Jeff Wagner-less Monday edition. He'll be back tomorrow. I'm Scott Warris, and you mean, uh, that means before we all get out of here and turn things over to John Mercure, I've got to squeeze in a Monday Great edition of, Scott. oh, yes, indeed. Great Scott it is. I, I do not get this story from the weekend. You may have seen it. A basketball jersey believed, believed, Not necessarily 100% sure, but believed to have been worn by former President Barack Obama while he was at Honolulu Prep School, has sold at auction. Did you see this story over the weekend, Kyle? You did not. Okay, pop on your mic here. How How much money do you think a basketball jersey believed to have been worn by former President Obama in high school? How much do you think this fetched at auction over the weekend? Uh, 10,000. 10,000. Higher. Uh, 80,000. $120,000. Heritage Auctions said the jersey sold Saturday night in Dallas to a collector of American and sports artifacts who wished to be unidentified. We don't know who it is. The jersey was offered by Peter Noble. This guy named Peter Noble was three years behind Obama at uh, Punahou School. Noble, he lives in Seattle, he's 55. He said the jersey was destined for the trash when he picked it up. Years later, he saw an old photo of Obama wearing a number 23 jersey while at school. The auction house says details on the shirt 
match the one Obama is photographed wearing. Noble says a portion of the sale will go to the school. Look, the thing that struck me most about this story is not the fact that an artifact of former President Obama's went up for auction. I mean, you, you have presidential memorabilia and items up for auction all the time, and this happens to be a high school basketball jersey. How in the world? How in the world does something like this fetch $120,000? Who in the world would pay a $120, uh, $120, yeah, $120 maybe, $120,000 for a high school jersey of Barack Obama's. I, I, I'm, I'm just gobsmacked. Hey, there's another good word, gobsmacked. I'm gobsmacked by the price that this was, you know, the, the winning bid for this. Um, what had been, as, as uh, Noble says, what had been for decades a personal memento of my own childhood has been transformed into a monumental artifact of American history, and as such, I have decided it deserves a stage much larger than my closet. As I say, he kept the jersey as a memento of some very special times and glory days. He happened to notice that Obama was wearing 23. Obama wore it two years before the time I would have worn a number 23 jersey. According to the man... Wow, I can't believe it. But there you have it. President Barack Obama's high school basketball jersey. Hey, if you got the money to spend, I guess congratulations. But $120,000? Too rich for my blood. Would have just shipped it to the Smithsonian and leave it at that. And that is a Monday Wagner Show edition of Great Scott. We'll check in with John and Melissa, see what they have brewing for a Monday edition of Wisconsin's Afternoon News as we continue next. Scott in for Jeff on WTMJ.